tonight is January 21st, 2004, and this is our first little service in our new sanctuary. And it's Matthew 18, who is the greatest? So we're going to be starting in verse 1. It says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child, had him stand among them, and he said, I tell you the truth. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I see two parts in his answer. There are two basic things that he told them to do. The question is, hey, we know there are many grades, many levels, many tiers in the kingdom of heaven. How do we get to be the greatest? That's really the heart of what they're asking in the synoptic gospels and the others. It doesn't just say that they were arguing about who's the greatest. Is it Moses? Is it Elijah? Is it, uh, well, they didn't know Paul, but you understand what I'm saying. It says they were arguing amongst themselves about who was the greatest. So it, it's not even as benign as, do you think John the Baptist was greater than Elijah? No, they wanted to know amongst themselves who ranked the highest. Well, Peter's the loudest. Does that make him the first? Well, Jesus hangs out with John the most. Do you think it's him? And Jesus says two things about it. The first one, our ministry is called life-changing ministries. Jesus told them, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never inherit the kingdom of heaven. The first thing that every person has to do if you want to be great in the kingdom is be willing to change. In fact, something that you ought to get deep down in your spirit is if you're not changing your mind about things... If you're not changing as a human being, you've ceased to grow and are then dead. You ought to know more tomorrow than you do today. Your understanding about things should not always stay the same. Change ought to be the norm in a Christian's life. And although sometimes it's faster than other times, it should never stop. Have you ever heard from some dusty old Christian who's been sitting on his salvation 20 years? Well, I've been a Christian 20 years. And you think, yeah, and you hadn't learned anything new in 10 of the 20? It ought not be that way. We should have the freshness of a child always. Judah was excited to be in here tonight. He was excited for one reason. He was going to learn something new. And that was, that was exciting to him. You know, I was telling somebody else earlier this evening, it wouldn't matter where we were. If Judah is in the presence of his father... He's happy. We could be out on the street corner without any food, with little to our names. And Judah's happy because he's with his daddy. There's a lot to be said for being like a child. But before we get there, the second thing, he said you have to change, you have to become like a child. What else did he say? You have to be humbled. Now, you want to be great in the kingdom of God? You have to be willing to change and you have to be willing to be humbled. And children are the example that he used. I started to tell y'all some during our time of prayer. There's a reason he picked the child. You're going to find out that this child later, it said, believes in him. So it's not any child. Incidentally, the warning about causing one of the little ones to stumble. It's true it's not good to cause any child to stumble, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about specifically a child who believes in him. Okay? But he didn't just pick... Any child. He picked a child who believed in him and he held him up as the standard. 
As we grow, we become more aware of things that can harm us. We become more aware of our surroundings. Knowledge is not always a good thing. Think about Adam and Eve for a minute. They were ignorant of what was good and evil. They didn't know how to even tell the difference. Did they have a pretty good life? Yeah, they walked with God daily. All of the provisions were met. They didn't know what it was to die. Had no concept of it. The moment they gained the knowledge for themselves of what was good and evil, they only chose that which was evil. We need to revert to the place. We need to be changed to a place where we're like children and we rely solely on our parents to tell us what is good and bad. And we trust what they tell us completely. And our parents here being God. Okay. So two things. You want to change and you want to be willing to be humbled. The New Testament mentions change for the first time here. You make it 18 chapters into Matthew before you hear the word change. And the first time you're told changed at all for any reason, you're told to change and become like a child. As Christians, we are to cease to operate in our adult independence. And our minds are to be made new. Turn with me to Romans 12. Look on with mommy, Judah. I watched, I, I got to stop by Judah's school for about 25 minutes today. And I watched those kids play outside. And you know, below the age of six, they're really pretty free of social concern. One's hair can be sticking straight up, and they're not worried about what their friends think who's next to them. You know, they, they do around that age start to react to those, but especially previously to that, prior to that. You know, one might not have on the most fashionable clothes, you know. Maybe their parents aren't as well. They could care less. Children are just as happy naturally as can be to be around other kids. To uh, They just are pretty carefree. As Christians, we ought to be able to walk around with the same easy, light yoke. Jesus said... His yoke was easy and it was light. Now, Jesus didn't have an easy life. How can we say his yoke is easy and it's light? That's because in a farming community like the Jews had, you yoke two animals together. An older animal, in this case let's use an oxen as an example, and a younger animal. The older bared the brunt of the load, while the younger simply was hitched to him. So that he could learn and he could follow the older oxen. It taught them to be under a yoke together. And this is how two walk in harmony together. What Jesus is saying is if you hitch yourself to him, the yoke's easy and it's light. He carries the brunt of the load always. All you have to do is learn to keep in step with him. And that way it's easy to be like a child. But look at Romans 12. It says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy... To offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. To renew something means to make it new again. That, that's pretty hard to do. Something you would think would only be new once, right? I always thought that was funny about olive oil. They call some olive oil extra virgin olive oil. 
You would think either it was a virgin or it was not. Right? Well, renewing is the same kind of principle. You say, well, how can it be made new again? Jesus said in Mark 9, For him who believes, all things are possible. We realize in the, in the natural realm, the guy you were or the lady that you were before you got saved is still sitting here today. But by faith, we're calling you made new because you've decided to change from that old way of life. You are being changed into something that is pleasing to God. That's what we're going to talk about for a few minutes. But the first place it starts is in the renewing of your mind. We have a behavioral health department where I work. Part of their job, as I understand it, and I confess I understand very little of it, so don't anybody throw anything at me if I don't get this right, is to help people stop destructive behavior patterns, to teach them to cope with things in a more positive way. When you become a Christian, that's literally what the Spirit teaches you to do. You, Romans 12 says... Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. You have ingrained in you a pattern. i give you a good example that's easy outwardly to see. When somebody hurts you, what does the world do? Hurt back. That's the pattern. When somebody's ugly to you, what do you do? You're ugly back. When somebody's snide, you're snide back. Somebody slaps you, you slap them. They kill one of yours, you kill ten of theirs. You know this worldly kind of thing? That's a pattern that is ingrained in people from the very beginning. I just picked outward ones. We didn't, we didn't even talk about lust and envy and jealousies and insecurities. But the devil and the world system has worked to corrupt you from birth with a certain pattern. To be born again, to, to be great in the kingdom of God, the very first thing that has to happen is your mind has to be Made new. That happens in one way. Every time the old pattern starts to come up, you compare it with the Word of God and you reject the old for the new. This is kind of like having an operating system on a computer. Maybe you're running on Windows 95 and you're trying to load Windows XP. Every time you enter an old command, you see it doesn't work right. There's a new way to do it. The hard drives of your heart have got to be renovated. They've got to be wiped clean and start again. And that way you're becoming like a child. Or the way Jesus said it to Nicodemus is you must be born again. It means to start fresh. Now, I realize each one of you is the same person that you were before. But now you are renewing your mind with washing of the word. From, uh, from there, in our mind... The renewing process, by renewing our mind, we enter into a process where we gain freedom. You gain freedom from adult concerns, the pride and sin that happens in adults. You know, at some point, little kids start to, especially you see it in junior high years, they start to worry about who likes who a whole lot more than they did before. They start to worry about the clothes that they're wearing. For the first time, the little boy or little girl wants mom or dad to drop them off down the street instead of pulling in. You know, if somebody comes to their house, they're concerned. The pride of life has creeped in. They're concerned about the kind of dwelling that they live in. As we grow, that pattern starts to be ingrained in us. Part of renewing your mind means that we work against that pattern. And you start to get a freedom from it. 
My son could run around in here with no shirt on, with his hair purple, sticking up in the air, dancing, and in love with Jesus without a concern as to what not one of you thinks. Not one of you, except his parents. That's a place that we want to enter into in Christ. And look how the Word says that very same thing. Turn to 2 Corinthians 3. We're not going to go real long tonight. This is a, a Wednesday. 2 Corinthians 3. The idea being that you renew your mind to gain a sense of freedom in the Lord. Verse 16. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, and friends, that's what you've all done, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is spirit. As your mind begins to be renewed... As you gain a freedom to act in any way that God wants you to act, no longer worried, well, if I do that, what will Jan think? Well, if I say that, what will Stacy think? If David sees me do that, what will he think of me? As your mind's renewed, you gain a freedom that comes by the presence of the Lord so that you can act any way that the Lord's Spirit would tell you. And therefore, you begin to reflect Him. Do you see the last part of that verse? Uh, and we with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is spirit. As your mind's renewed, as you lay down your adult inhibitions, as you lay down all of these prideful sins of the fear of man and what people will think, all of a sudden this glory starts to be revealed. All of a sudden the Lord can start to shine through you. You know, when you quit worrying about what people think about you at work, when you quit worrying about, well, if I say that, that thing that the Lord is laying on my heart to say, that's thumping in my chest, what will the consequences be? When you quit worrying about those things, all of a sudden you start to reflect God to people. Because you can speak, you can be His ambassador, you can do the things that He would do if He were there. How concerned do you think Jesus was with how He was received by men? He said not at all. He knew what was in them. Jesus never begged people to follow him. He was never concerned when a crowd left him. And yet if one of our friends doesn't want to talk to us anymore, we're hurt over that. Part of what we did with the communion tonight was to proclaim our death along with his, to live a new life in Jesus. We don't have the right to let social concerns rule us anymore. As part of counting the cost of becoming a Christian. Consequences should no longer affect you. Circumstances should no longer affect you. The more that your mind is renewed, the Spirit will dwell in you. You'll gain a freedom to do whatever He would tell you to do and therefore reflect Him more accurately. With renewed minds like that of a child and freedom from sin, sin like adult fear and adult pride, We wait with assurance of the goal of our faith. Philippians 3 teaches that after you've been renewed, after you gain this freedom, young turn to Philippians 3, something else happens. It's Philippians 3.18. For as, as I have often told you, 
before and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. You know why people are opposed to the cross of Christ? Because people want to hang on to that adult fear and pride and inhibitions. They despise the freedom that real Christians have because it's convicting to them. And I say real because most Christians don't ever get that far. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. The goal of your faith is that the renewing process, the rebirth, starts in your mind. It works its way out to your actions and it finishes with your body itself being transformed. The goal of Christianity is not just to go to heaven, it's to receive a heavenly body that will never die. To have flesh on you that is not corruptible anymore, it's not polluted by the world, it doesn't crave or desire bad things. There's a day coming when we will all be transformed, we will all be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Corinthians 15 teaches this. My point is, is when he says be changed like a child, the first thing that has to happen is your mind's got to be renewed. The second thing that has to happen is that renewing of your mind should bring a freedom to do whatever the Lord tells you to do. The third thing is that eventually this hope is rewarded by a body that is totally transformed into his glorious likeness. Change wasn't all that he said for us to do, though. The next part was humility. It says, This changing, transforming, and renewing only happens as we humble ourselves like a child. Let's look at Luke 14. Talk about a very freeing principle here. One of the problems with most of what we do is we tend to exchange one system for another that's equally flawed. We say, Okay, Lord. We know we have to be renewed. We're going to renounce the world's principles and we're going to take up yours. Then we take up some of the Lord's, but then we apply worldly principles to them. Instead of wanting to be great in the world, want to be Deion Sanders or some president or some multimillionaire, you want to be great in the kingdom. You take something spiritual and make it dirty like the world. You compete. Have you ever been in churches where they compete? If Jennifer sings a solo, Mandy's got to outdo that solo. If my church has got ten people in it, my pastor friend has got to have eleven. If we have a new sound system, the church across the street's going to get a bigger sound system. Do you all see that kind of competition that goes on? I tell you, at a pastor's meeting, the first question out of so many pastors' mouth is, Hey, hey, Stace, how many are you running? They're competing for the number of attenders. And what they're not saying is they're competing for the number of tithers. So much so that one church I'm familiar with in Baton Rouge that is Baptist, when the pastors were interviewed and hired, despite what Jesus says about hirelings, part of the things that they put on their resume was the percentage that they'd been able to increase tithe. In other words, they hired pastors based on their fundraising ability. This kind of worldly competition should never make it in the church. I mean, that, those things should never exist. They've never been renewed. This are to free you. In Luke 14, verse 7, 
Yes, baby. What do you mean principle? Principle. What did I say? Principle? Ah, a principle, Judah, is uh, a saying about the way something works. And sometimes principles are right, and sometimes they're wrong. We have to take up the right thoughts about the way that we do things. And I'll explain more of that to you later. In Luke 14, we're going to, Judah, we're going to teach a principle or a thought about the way things should work. Okay? Jesus began to teach. And in verse 7, it says, When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. A parable is nothing more than a story that may or may not have happened to teach a spiritual principle. Jesus watched their behavior. He watched the pattern by which these people worked. And he taught something so that they could be renewed in their thinking. They could change their ungodly pattern into a godly pattern. It says, When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this man your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. The kingdom principle is this. If you humble yourself, God will raise you to the top. But if you do things to raise yourself to the top, he will abase you. He will humble you. Nebuchadnezzar was one of the first. No, he was the first kingdom. He's the king of the first kingdom that ruled the entire planet. And because of this, he was very prideful. It's okay, buddy. Okay. He became very prideful. Daniel saw a vision of a statue with a dazzling head of gold. This head of gold represented Nebuchadnezzar. But in his pride, he did not acknowledge God who placed him above all other men. So this king was placed out in a field where he lost his mind. His hair grew long and became like bird's feathers, the book of Daniel says. His nails like talons on a, on a bird. And he lost his mind for a time. Now, that's not the end of Nebuchadnezzar's life. The last recorded words of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the greatest kingdom on the earth in his day, were God is able to abase the proud. Abase is nothing more than a fancy way to say humble the proud. Nebuchadnezzar got the message. I believe he got saved. The freeing principle in this is if you are not competing to be at the top of the table, there is never a time that you will be humiliated and shown to not be where you think you are. If you always think of yourself as the lowest and allow God to move you up, it's nobody's responsibility. You don't have to fight to climb the ladder of life. It's God's responsibility to cause you to raise in life. You don't do it. Somebody once told me, 
that they had no expectations and therefore they were never disappointed. I really didn't like what they were what they were saying. It didn't it didn't click right with my spirit. But in the kingdom, if you have no expectations of becoming great, if you're willing to serve the very least and be like a child, then everything that God does for you will be a plus. It will be a bonus. And you know what? The end principle that we'll get to tonight is he'll take everybody who has striven to be striven, strived to be first, and he will make them last in front of the whole world's eyes. While those that never strived for that, those that served the least, those that were like little children just being obedient, he will cause to be the heads of nations. I mean, that's that's really where we're going with this. So this changing, transforming, and renewing only happens as we humble ourselves like a child. Humility will also give you the strength to be at the foot while waiting to be moved towards the head. Look at 2 Corinthians 4. We've got just a couple more here. Second Corinthians 4, verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not, not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. He can sit there and say, I'm not losing heart. It looks like I'm at the foot of the table, but I'm not beginning to lose heart for a moment because this momentary position because it's just momentary, is far outweighed by what I don't see happening, which is God advancing me. And there's a day coming when this world system that we see will give way to the spiritual kingdom of God that we don't see. See, your humility in Christ, your willing to be at the foot of the table, will cause for you eternal glory. But it takes faith to live that way. It doesn't take faith to say it. it. doesn't take faith to believe it. It takes faith to live that way. So what if nobody acknowledges the great things that you did? So what if you gave somebody money and nobody knows? So what if you mowed your neighbor's grass and they didn't even know that it was you? So what if nobody knows how religious and pious you are? Or what a great man or woman you are, how smart you are, how good looking you are, how much money you have. So what? What the kingdom teaches is, if you are willing to sit at the foot, God will raise you to be the head. Are you all understanding what I'm saying? You all with me here? My son's not worried about where he stands in our social ranking. Whether he's your leader or whether he's uh, looked at as smart or great or any of those things. He's happy just to be here. And he figures anything that we do is a move up for him. Well, we've chosen to be at the end of the parade of life as Christians. Most people are not going to understand the things we do. It will be foolishness to them. We've chosen that because we followed a king who did that very same thing. He had a kingdom, but it was not of this world. In Pilate's eyes, Jesus was at the very foot of the table. Pilate will one day see that he's at the foot And Jesus is at the head. But it's not evident to the world. 
And because of that, sometimes what Paul calls light and momentary troubles become things that want to choke us out. That they want to change your mind, make you revert back to the old way of doing things. You start off in faith, you did secret blessings. But because nobody noticed it, it was never acknowledged. That old pattern comes out and you want to pat yourself on the back for it. You find a subtle way to leave hints that you did it. You know, you pray for somebody in complete faith to be healed. They get healed. And later you can't. There are maybe four or five people praying, right? Later you can't help but say something like, yeah, but I really think I was the one that healed them. You know, we, we revert back when we don't see immediate gratification. All the kingdom is about is delayed gratification. Being willing to be abased now that you'll be exalted later. Because everybody who receives exaltation in this life receives humiliation in the next. Humility and rebirth as God's children have allowed us to become heirs. Before we get go there, though, go, go ahead and go to Colossians. We've got two more scriptures. Humility will give you strength to be at the foot of the table while you're waiting for the head. That's what Paul called light and momentary troubles. Then in Colossians 3, humility and renewal will free you from competition and allow Christ to be all in all. This is Colossians 3, starting in verse 9. Do not lie to each other. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self. That's nothing more than saying you've been reborn, you've been born again, you've been renewed. Which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Here there is neither Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and in all. If everybody in Christ is sitting at the foot of the table, there's nothing to compete about anymore. You know, one brother who happens to be rich can't look down on a brother who is not rich. The, bro- the younger, the brother who's not rich shouldn't look up to the one who is rich. There is no more social standing. You are all equally humble before Christ. So that it doesn't matter whether you're worshiping next to the CEO of a company or a janitor of the same company. You all have the same standing. And I tell you what's really hard for us Americans. Everybody wants to take the CEO of the company and make him the pastor of the church. I've been in several churches like that. Well, he's a good businessman. He, uh, he knows how to handle things. Surely he'll be good at church administration. When the most successful churches I've ever seen were by the people that had no such skills. You know, the carpenters, the welders, and the janitors. A man who greatly touched my life uh, was uh, Willie Allen. I bless my socks off. He's an African-American man with a sixth grade education that was a pastor ordained in his church. And he worked as a, a technician and before that as a basically janitorial staff in the building that I was at. And I guarantee you, because he had been renewed by the word of God, this former crack dealer was wiser in the things of God than the CEO of that company. Not because that man was unintelligent or a bad man. But he had not been renewed. He claimed to be religious. Demanded that we prayed in some of our meetings. Was not born again. 
And this former crack dealer with a sixth or seventh grade education was more powerful in the kingdom of God. And that's a real obvious example to people that know those two men. But there are a lot less obvious examples. God will take the child in your midst to teach the wisest adults. He did it to his apostles. Do you realize that? Sometimes we have this kind of pride. Well, like, I've been in the Lord 15 years. Stacy's only been in the Lord three years. How dare she have said that to me? Jesus took the least. He found a child and taught his apostles by that child. But somehow we're too good for that. Shouldn't be that way. Something that irks me big time. I tell you, it's the fastest way to step on my toes. And I'm doing my best to get over that. Is when people continually mention what a young man I am. And how hard it is for them to hear something from me because I am such a young man. Jesus was 30 and they looked at him and said, you're not yet 50. And you know what? If he'd been 50... Somebody who was 60 would have said, you're not yet 60. If you compare yourselves to others and measure yourself by yourself, the word says you are not wise. See, in the kingdom, you can take the least to teach whoever thinks they're the greatest. Because to be great, you have to become the least. Now, if it's humbling for anybody in here to hear this kind of stuff from me because I'm so young or unorganized or bald or whatever it might be, I mean, whatever the reasons might creep in, just think, God's chosen to humble me through this man. You know, have you ever thought about missionary experiences just while I'm on the subject? Why does God send a white-skinned man to a dark-skinned people? Why does he send dark-skinned men to white-skinned people? Why, Why does he send a foreigner to a country instead of raising up a native of that country. Because to accept this gospel we have, it requires the premise that you be willing to humble yourself and say, I don't know anything and I need your help. It could never be harder to do than if somebody's a different color or a different nationality or from a faraway place. You know, that's why foreign missions works the way that it does. Somebody comes, does not even speak your language, doesn't have your background, he's going to tell you all you need to know about God. It requires a special person to listen to that. My friends buzzed in the rain when they got to Germany. The Germans said, well, of course we are Christians. We are Germans. So it took a special kind of German to be able to hear from these people. No, you really don't know what you need to know about Jesus. You've not experienced him. You've simply grown up around him. God will choose humbling means because this is how he separates the many from the few that are chosen. Does that make sense to you all? That's why we're meeting in what used to be a garage. You know, That's why we didn't go get a small business loan and put up a steeple. Because this kind of environment, and we won't always be here, but it draws the kind that are willing to live this in a real fashion. The best experience I ever got to have was when we started the last church we were in, we were in a school cafeteria. And then from the school cafeteria in somebody's living room. From the living room, we went to a church with everybody there was a different color, a different denomination. In fact, we were no denomination. They heard us preach one time, didn't tell us anything. We showed up the next week, and we were locked out of the building. And I noticed that day, because it happened to be about 35 degrees and was raining, that as we held church service in the parking lot, about half the crowd got in their cars and went home. 
The other half stayed. You know what? A few years later, as we went through natural trials and the church was growing, none of the people that got in their cars and went home were still in the church. See, if it doesn't cost you something to be a Christian, if it doesn't humble you, if it's not hard, you don't make it. But those of us that struggle much appreciate what we have. You appreciate it and you would die for it. Go ahead and go to uh, Titus 3. We're almost done here. Y'all stay awake for me so you don't break my heart. (laughs) You see delicate flower that I am. All the T's are together in your Bible. That makes it easy to find Titus. I've always appreciated that. I picked up that Hebrew Bible the other day and the books are in a different order. and That's a humbling experience in and of itself. Titus 3. Humility and rebirth as God's children have allowed us to become heirs. So this is Titus 3 verse 4. But when the kindness and love of our God, our Savior, appeared... He saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. If you're changed like a child, if you've experienced this rebirth, you have the hope of living forever. It's amazing. You have to set aside all your worldly wisdom and count it as dung, as Paul said, and become like a little child, only knowing what your father, God, has taught you. And then you become an heir of salvation. Two scriptures and we're done. Turn to Matthew 19. Verse 28, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things. See, not only are we being renewed, all things are being renewed. The heavens and the earth are being made new again. So at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Did you hear those things that people left? Fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers. Man, in churches today, we give donuts and gift certificates for people to get saved. We tell them that it costs them nothing when it's really not true. It costs them nothing financially. It costs you your whole life. You have to be willing to die that you might live in Him. You have to be willing to turn your back on everyone that you have ever known. Or rather have them turn their back on you. You have to be willing to be ridiculed by all men. If you're not, this doesn't apply to you. But for those special ones that it does apply to, it says, but many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. It's kind of like those kids that fight and struggle to get at the very front of the line. And they push the others out of the way and they bully their way to the front. While others who are kind and gentle and loving 
stand back. They don't fight. They don't push. They don't bully. And they're at the back of the line. And Jesus walks up and says, Ooh, those ones at the front work according to this world's principles, while the ones at the back work according to my principles. And he turns the line around. That will happen at the renewal of all things. Those people who have high social standing now because they have fought and clawed their way to the top and they have had a dog-eat-dog life devouring one another, Jesus will make at your feet. While those of us that have loved the Lord and lived according to His principles will be the heads of nations. The twelve apostles will sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve nations or the twelve tribes of Israel. There are lots of other nations left to be judged. In the millennial reign, what you have done in this life will echo in eternity. You will be assigned some leadership based on what you did in this life. You want to become great? Serve the very least in this life and you will be great in the next life. That takes faith. It really does because you won't see it happening now. But every moment, every trouble you have, you can consider light and momentary. Every time there's an urge to compete, you can say, no, I'm one with Christ and all of us are equals. Every time you feel like you need to do something to promote yourself, you can say, no, I'm going to sit at the foot of the table until God raises me to the head and that may not be until His kingdom comes. Let's go back to Matthew 18. I'm going to read that again and we're going to close. But I'm going to read the last few verses of it too. Matthew 18.1 At that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them and said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to this world, or woe to the world, because of such things that cause people to sin. What are the such things that cause people to sin? In this case, it's pride. A competitive pride. Such things must come. But woe to the man they come through, or woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into an eternal fire. Who's he talking about entering life? These people are already born. They're already walking around. He's not talking about having that cut off in the womb. He's talking about entering the real life, his life. It's better for you to enter life without the use of your arm than it is for you to have two arms and it keep you from entering into his life. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. After he teaches that you have to become like a little child, after he teaches that you must be humbled like a child, He throws out this to cause them to count the cost. Guys, whatever it is that would hinder you from becoming like a child, trusting like a child, willing to be the least in this life, whatever it is, you need to get rid of it. He used an extreme, absurd example to drive his point home. 
Nobody here is going to tear out their eyes, nor should you. If that happens, it would be in some weird demonic kind of fit. But your attitude should be, no matter what the cost, with a reckless abandonment, I will do whatever it takes to humble myself before God, to cause my life to change, to become like a child, trusting an obedience based on trust in Him. Judah will do what I tell him to do because he trusts me. He knows Daddy doesn't want to hurt him. We need to do what God tells us to do regardless of what it is because we know He doesn't want to hurt us. Does that make sense to you all? It's interesting that Romans 12 says, Submit the members of your body to Christ. See, you don't have to tear out your eyes or cut off your hands. You simply submit that area of your body to Christ as a spiritual act of worship. You can say, Lord, these eyes are causing me to sin. I'm going to quit using them for my life, and I want you to have them to be used in your life. And then you stop doing whatever you were doing. Same way with your hands or your feet or anything else. Paul picked up on Jesus' teaching in Romans 12 when he taught of the service gifts. And he said, submit the members of your body to Christ. It's a spiritual act of worship. You're not supposed to tear out your eyes. You're supposed to act as if they were torn out. No longer used for your purposes, used for God's. We, in this charismatic tradition, raise our hands before God because Paul said so. What you're raising your hands for is saying, I'm submitting these things that I do everything with to you. I have no anger, I have no wrath, no malice towards any man. And these that used to be unclean, I'm now offering to you. I'm submitting them to you, Lord. Take my hands and do what you want. Take, when we sing praises to God, we're saying, take our mouths and do what you want. We're saying, about our feet, Lord. Anoint our feet, carry us in the footsteps you would have us to go. The truth is, most Christians walk where they want to walk and then ask God to anoint it. When what we're supposed to do is say, Lord... We want to walk in your footsteps. You cannot follow Jesus and lead Jesus at the same time. cannot be done. So we need to take the attitude that whatever the cost, whatever it takes, we're willing to become like a little child. We're willing to be humbled, thought of as the least in society for the benefit of Jesus. Now, here's, here's the real blessing in it. I guarantee, I absolutely promise you, if you do that, he will cause favor to happen everywhere you are. I've held jobs that I'm not, uh, I can't think of the right word, that I don't have the credentials for. I've been in situations with people that were way out of my league and counted as their equal. Everywhere I have gone, God has blessed me in every way. Whether it's been financially, spiritually, naturally, or just in wisdom, He's given me everything I've ever needed. But I refuse to strive to compete with anybody for anything. I'm going to sit at the foot of the table and he will move me to the head. He always does. It just requires a trust. And your trust in him is not blind. Y'all heard the term that trust is blind faith? It's not. There's no such thing as blind faith. Even though you can't see it, you have good reason to believe it. So it's not blind. You can't see the wind, but you know it's there. You can't see electricity, but you see the fruit of it. I may not be able to see what God is doing, but I know that it's good because I have reason to believe it's good based on everything else that he's done. Y'all stand up. Let's pray.